through our series uh, Joseph and so we're going to read Genesis 37 all of it so uh, yeah hang with me open your Bibles to Genesis 37 starting in verse 1 Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan these are the generations of Jacob Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock of Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him watering, wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I have heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then, he will say, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, 
What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify it, whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Thanks, Brandon. That was a lot to read. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for serving us. If you all haven't met Brandon or Alex, they are mission community leaders here with us. And uh, also my dear friends, thank you guys for leading us today. We also have Zach Varnell here, and he has been tirelessly serving us, honestly, since yesterday when he started setting up. Thank you, Zach, for doing that. And uh, we really appreciate that. Um, Guys, it's only been a little over a week since all of this kind of really started affecting our day-to-day -day lives. And um, I didn't realize how much I wanted to hug people until about right now. And it's people in Tacoma and it's people all over the world. Our church in uh, Slovakia, where Laurel and I serve, um, I long to hug them. And, and uh, someone said, this is a equal opportunity infection, no one shall be hugged. <laughs> and uh, I'm feeling that a little bit right now. It, uh, I didn't realize I'd be giving up hugs for Lent. And, um, and I say this not jokingly, it seems like we are called to give a lot up for Lent. This is the season God has us in. And uh, we don't exactly know what all he's doing. If you don't know me yet, my name is Dawson Jones. And I am one of the external elders serving Soma Tacoma in this season. Um, and more importantly, I am a beloved son of the king to whom we just sang. Um, and it is well with my soul. Even though the lyrics didn't pop up on the screen, <laughs> it is well with my soul. And uh, I'm a beloved son. We, we have been in Philippians. And we were about to wrap up the book of Philippians. And when all this changed... Uh, we still will wrap up uh, Philippians 4. Philippians 4, the last 10 verses have to do with contentment and have to do with giving and uh, really financial security. And we are going to speak uh, from that text and uh, to our situation in a different video this week or next week, as soon as our external elders are able to give some time to it, about what does 
um, benevolence look like in this season? What does it look like for us to care for each other? So if you thought we just forgot about that last section, we didn't, and we will be giving some time to that. We want, um, Philippians has been shaping our hearts and we want, we want to continue, uh, we want to finish that. But today, like Brandon said, we are in Genesis 37 and the story of Joseph, a story which I'm excited for us to look at together as a family. So you can keep your Bibles open to Genesis 37. And I, um, I want to start by uh, a little story. Um, I've only been a parent for five years, and yet there are already a good handful of moments, specific lines that I know I'm going to remember. Um, and one line is from my two-year-old. Uh, she's now my three-year-old. But when she was two, I remember the first time my little Lucia, there she is. Uh, little Lucia said, you're breaking my heart. She said, you're breaking my heart. And it was at 2 a.m. in the morning when she was asking for a snack. And we were trying to set boundaries, Laurel and I. And we were like, we got to stop doing these midnight snacks. And she looks at me and says, you're breaking my heart. Um, Laurel reminded me of another uh, story when uh, my oldest daughter, both of them have lived most of their life in Slovakia, but she was born in uh, Washington. And um, we took her to Cannon Beach down in Oregon, which I'm sure many of you have been to. And we park and you have to kind of walk a little distance um, to get to the beach. And she, but before we got there, before we could even see the ocean, she plops herself down because she found these little sticks. And she was really interested in them. And we were trying to get her to like move to the beach because it's Cannon Beach. And, and she had her line uh, where she, uh, she looks at uh, Laurel and says, you're ruining my plans. She's again, our little toddlers. Um, later, I remember moments uh, she switched from the line, you're ruining my plans to you're crushing my dreams. So she's a little bit more dramatic. Lulu's a little more heart. You know, you're breaking my heart. Um, and we laugh at this, but honestly, uh, we aren't that different. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll, I'll be honest. There, I, in both situations, especially, like, I want to grab my daughter. By the shoulders and say, hey, lovey, like, I'm your daddy. Don't you know that everything I'm doing is, is because I want you to flourish in life. I want you to do well. I love you. This is for your good. I want you to know. That's everything in me. Um, and yet, we often, we often get to a place where, like my daughters, um, we look at the world or God or so, we, and, we, and we yell out, what's going on? You're ruining my plans. You're crushing my dreams. You're breaking my hearts. Um, there's a line in Le Miserable where Fantine says, uh, life has killed the dream I dreamed. We all have these, this dream of life and then reality hits and it doesn't match up to our expectations. And we can say this line with her, like, okay, what's going on? We, we realize in moments of our life that the ship on which we're sailing through our lives is a very fragile vessel. It's a very fragile little boat and it's easily turned in the storms of life. And it's so easy for us to, to get shipwrecked before we ever reach our dreams. And, and then we wonder what's going on. Now that could be any number of things. That's probably been many things for uh, for each of us, it could be the storm of 
of, of a career we thought was going to come to be, and it didn't. It, it stopped. It could be a, a difficult marriage or a failed marriage. Um, it could be parenting a teenager. It's like, this is not what I expected. It could be a friendship that is no more. But to be honest, family, um, we're in a unique season where we are really feeling our boat is fragile. We've been feeling it for a few months after our pastor and friend, Randy, committed suicide. And then for the last 10 days, we've been feeling it in a new crisis. We are in a fragile boat, not just our church family, but it seems like the whole world is in this little fragile lifeboat. And there's a storm and family, um, this chapter, this book, this uh, story in the book of Genesis is a unique story. It's a story of a young boy, a 17-year-old boy who has dreams, literal dreams, right? And Brandon read the first page of it, and it starts with the dreams. And by the time he got to the end of it, those dreams have seemingly looks like shattered into a thousand pieces. And um, the story of Joseph is a rough story. Joseph's going to suffer a lot. In fact, I need to give a little disclaimer uh, because I don't know if kids are watching or not, but um, this story is probably rated PG-13. And um, if this chapter isn't, then definitely next week is in chapter 38. So I just want to give that, you know, in terms of like, there's going to be some violence. There'll be the, uh, the acknowledgement of the existence of sex, if you will. And so um, just, just a little caution there, but Joseph's story is not a nice story. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of pain. There's abuse. His brothers are going to, like we already read, they, they plan to kill him and then they sell him into slavery. Uh, he gets framed for promiscuity later. Uh, he, uh, he, he, he's forgotten in prison. He's, he, he has years and years of suffering. And as we look at the story, we see something that's very surprising in all of these circumstances. It's not simply that, that Joseph gets through them or, or around them and, 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 he, and he ends up in this fairy tale end at the end. It's, that's not what happens. If you look closely to the story, it actually turns out that God is at work, not in spite of these circumstances, but actually through these very difficult, hard circumstances and, and these events in Joseph's life, these events turn out to be the very means by which our good Lord is accomplishing his good purposes, not just for Joseph, but for his family. And we'll see that it's for the whole world. Now, I, I don't know who all's listening and I don't, I don't know where you're at. I mean, you could hear those things I just said and you could have pretty strong emotions about what I just said. And um, honestly, we're already in a season where we have some pretty strong emotions. And I want to tell you, um, that's okay. In fact, I'd encourage all of us, let people have emotions right now. It's really important. It is a time uh, where we should react, react emotionally. We need to respond emotionally. And, and we are afraid and we are confused. Um, and when I say things like God working through the circumstances, that can, that can raise even some questions for us. Maybe it's hard for us to imagine the good purposes of God in a storm. 
in, in circumstances that involve suffering. Maybe, maybe that could even lead you to question the existence of God. I know that, I know that many, as we experience the difficulty that was Randy's suicide, people of strong faith went through dark places. Um, maybe you don't question the existence of God, and, and, and that's the problem. The reality of this broken, suffering world and God, it makes us kind of feel maybe anxious or maybe mad. And um, I could try to unpack those questions the best I could, or I could refer us to smarter people, but I don't know if it would fully satisfy us. And because of that, because of that, we want this story to speak to those questions. We, we want the story to shape our understanding of what's going on. And we want our story, this story, to shape our view of God. Um, our view of God is best shaped by a story where God's character is revealed in action and in, in practice. And, and this is a story in which God is doing and undoing all things to work together towards a magnificent purpose. I don't think crisis really shapes our theology as much as it kind of reveals it. It reveals what we think, what we believe. But the Spirit of God, through His Word and, and with community, that is what shapes our understanding of God. So we want to submit ourselves to this story. And we're going to look at the, this, this first chapter in two parts. Uh, first 12 verses. That, um, if I, I think I have that slide. There is no one out of reach of God's redemptive purposes. There's no one out of reach. And the second part is that there's no thing, there's nothing that God can't use towards his redemptive purposes. I'm going to stop and pray, and then we'll dive into those two parts. Father, we, we want to understand your heart. We do not, I do not want to pretend to understand the moment by any means, but we do desire to know what it means that a loving God only acts in acts of kindness and that you care for your sons and your daughters. I pray that wherever people are right now, that together you would, you would actually point our hearts to understand more closely who you truly are. Thank you for this story. Amen. So first, there's no one out of reach of God's redemptive purposes. Let's look at uh, those first two verses. Um, this family that's described here, it's an important family. The first two verses say this, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Now, those two verses have a lot packed in them, and we'll come back to them over the next few weeks. But um, Throughout this first book of the Bible, Genesis, we're looking for a few things ever since Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God. We're looking for a promised seed and a promised land. And both of those are actually in, in this, these two verses. Uh, the, since the very beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve rebelled, uh, there's this promise that there's going to be a seed, a descendant of Eve, who's actually going to deliver them. And so as you turn the pages of the, of the first book of the Bible, we continued to look for that seed. And there's this phrase, this, 
this is the account of blank's descendants, that phrase is always tracing that seed, that line. We're looking for a deliverer. We're not going to figure that all out today, um, but I just want you to have that framed as we go into the story of Joseph. That's really important. So Joseph's great-granddad, Abraham, he's received a promise that that deliverer, that snake crusher, is going to come through him. And then his granddad, uh, Isaac, has received the same promise, and so has his dad, Jacob. And in chapter 35, God is speaking to Jacob, and he says, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. So there's a promise that this family, Jacob's family, these 12 sons are going to become 12 tribes, are going to become a nation of Israel. And that's quite a promise. And it's quite a promise when you look at how messed up this family is. Like this messed up family has this promise. I mean, we just read the chapter. The, what Brandon read, it sounded like a, re, a reality TV show with a bunch of men who don't know how to control their emotions. That's what it sounded like. I mean, it is a mess. I, I want to look at some of the characters. We'll start with the least messy. Apparently, it looks like Joseph... He, he really is in a little bit different place than his brothers, but he's not perfect. Um, he, uh, he's 17 years old, and uh, no offense to 17-year-olds, but he kind of acts like one. I, I was one, not trying to, I'm just saying, he lacks wisdom, okay? He has these two dreams. Dream number one, they're in the fields, they're collecting grain, and they, they have the sheaves, and these, these, these sheaves, uh, they bow down to his sheave, right? And he tells them this dream, okay? And then dream number two, the sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down to him. Now, it, and if you noticed, it, it says that Joseph is the favorite son of his dad, right? And it's, it almost sounds like he tells him these dreams. He says, I'm not, only, I'm not only dad's favorite, I'm God's favorite. Like, he kind of put it in their face. At least it seems like that to me. And not only to me, um, there's a author, pastor, teacher named Tim Keller in New York, and he says 17-year-old Joseph, the Joseph of this chapter, better case scenario is that he's a psychopath, and, and by that it means like he just doesn't understand like how much his arrogance um, is influencing people. <laughs> That's the better case scenario. The worst case scenario is that he's just plain mean. I mean, dream number one, you tell your brothers they don't react really well and then you give them dream number two. Like, it's just a little bit much. So this is 17-year-old Joseph. Maybe you know someone like that, super talented, gifted, but they lack humility, and you're like, their success is going to be their demise if they don't get humbled quickly. That's what it looks like. This is the Joseph we meet right here, and we're going to see that suffering and waiting and God's providence and God's patience are going to make this man into a different man. That's Joseph, okay? Then we have Jacob, the dad. Uh, verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his brothers. It's obvious in this chapter that this dad is creating an unhealthy environment. He's favoring his son, the coat of many colors. I'm assuming we've all heard some, at least some version of the story. But um, this has been going on for a really long time. If you, if you just kind of read back a few chapters before, there's a moment where Jacob and his family are being confronted by Esau and his family, a.k.a. his army. And Jacob gets a little worried. And um, 
He has his favorite wife. That's a bad sign when you have a favorite wife. His favorite wife, Rachel, and her son, Joseph, he hides them in the back and surrounds them with the rest of his sons. They act as human shields. No wonder these guys have some tension going on. Like, he's a terrible dad. He's, he's favoring this one guy. And uh, by the way, he's really old in this story. You would think that at this point, the patriarch of Israel would kind of have matured. But he's kind of still a punk. I mean, he's, he's, it's at the end of his life and he's favoring a son. Maybe you feel like that in terms of, I don't know, like you're old. Or maybe you feel like, I've been struggling with this same thing forever. When is this going to change? Um, well, as we see in this story, God's not done with Jacob. There's actually an incredible amount of transforming power and healing grace that is yet to come into his life. It's amazing. At the last chapter, it's amazing. And I just want to say, if that's you, uh, when it comes to God's power and grace, don't make the mistake of assuming the best chapters are behind you. There's, there, he is not finished with us ever. And he's not finished with Jacob. Then there's, then there's the last piece of the family, and that's the brother's. And they really are bad dudes. They really are bad guys. Um, verse four tells us they hated him. They couldn't speak peacefully to Joseph. They couldn't say shalom to him. That means like they couldn't say peace to you. This is a, a really dysfunctional family. Maybe you can, maybe that resonates with you a little bit. But these guys, they're not just bickering, they're violent men. In chapter 34, they sneak around their father's back and they go into a village called Shechem. Remember that name, the village called Shechem and they massacre all the men there. They kill them off. And, and their dad, then I quote, he says, you've made me stink to all the inhabitants of the land. I shall be destroyed. He's ashamed of his sons. It gets worse in the next chapter, the oldest son, Reuben, sleeps with his stepmom, which is more about power than lust. Something similar happens with Judah. These are, these are messed up guys. This is a family that's in that's in like, it's desperate need of divine intervention. This is a dysfunctional family that needs help. And the question I wanna say kind of in the, the middle of our moment today is to what lengths will God go to redeem this family? They obviously need a lot of help. To what lengths is God gonna go? Why, why did I spend so much time describing this family? Family, because let, I want to make sure we get the characters straight. It's really easy. You watch the movies, Prince of Egypt. It's, it really is easy to, to look at this story and think it's a, like a Cinderella story. Like, we need to be like Joseph, persevere through the hard stuff, and there will be a, you know, a princess castle or an Egyptian princess awaiting for you. It really does look like a Cinderella story. But that, what we'd be reading it incredibly wrong if we read it that way. Because we're assuming that I am the hero of the story. We're assuming that this story is about me. And I just want to say, you're not the hero of the Joseph story. In fact, Joseph isn't the hero of the Joseph story. The hero of the Joseph story is a God who orchestrates the whole universe towards his purposes. And so what I want us to, to see over the next few weeks in this strange moment, as we identify with this story, is that Joseph is actually, after he's 17, <laughs> he's going to remind us a lot like Jesus. He's going to look a lot like Jesus. 
And the brothers are going to remind us of us. We are much more like the brothers than we are like Joseph. This is a dysfunctional family. And family, we are too. We are a dysfunctional family. I, I have a dysfunctional heart. And we need redeeming. And so the question is, to what lengths is God going to go to redeem this family and to redeem our dysfunctional hearts? There is no one out of reach of God's redemptive purposes. No one. It's the story about that. But the second thing we see is that there is no thing, there is nothing that God can't use towards his redemptive purposes. So this whole chain of events is triggered when, when Jacob sends his son to go check on his brothers. Let's read that in verse 12. I think I got that. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. Now, remember Shechem? I told you to remember that. This is the place where the brothers massacred a village. So there's a reason why Jacob might be saying, you need to go check on your brothers, right? And he's kind of sending him a little bit into danger, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. And Joseph, notice this, Joseph's obedient. He's an obedient son. Three simple words, here I am, here I am. And, I, and why do I highlight that? Because Joseph's obedience is not going to guarantee his safety. And I want to make sure we're clear on that. Our obedience does not mean that we are free from a life of suffering. There's no promise of that. There's no promise. In fact, he's obedient and this chain of events is triggered. And it's going to get a little, a little hard. And what we need to see is that God is sovereign over all these different seemingly random coincidences that then transpire. God's not mentioned in this story, but we do see his invisible hand at work. And he's sovereign in the details. Look at all the details that he's sovereign in. Jacob sends his son, Joseph, to look for his brother. Joseph happens to meet this random guy in the middle of the field. The brothers aren't where he thought it would be. And there's this random guy that happens to know where the brothers are. And then when he finally meets up with them and there's this whole weird uh, story of them trying to figure out, do we kill him? Do we throw him in a pit? Like he's in a pit and they're in the middle of a desert and this caravan of Egyptian slave traders comes. That's a, that's a huge coincidence, like in the middle of a desert. Uh, we see later that they tr these slave traders, they sell him to a house of a very powerful man who happens to be in the court of Pharaoh. That's a huge coincidence because eventually Joseph's going to become Pharaoh's right-hand man. And then eventually there's going to be a worldwide famine. Does that sound familiar? A worldwide crisis. And God is going to use a worldwide crisis to reunite a dysfunctional family. There's a lot of coincidences in this story. Some we already read, some we'll get to. And here's what we need, need to notice, that Joseph is in the middle of those coincidences. He's living them out. He does not know what I just told you. He doesn't. We see it backwards. He doesn't. In fact, when, when his dad says, Joseph, go check on your brothers, and Joseph says, here I am, he never comes home again. He never comes home. And it actually is going to take him 20 years, 20 years 
to understand what was happening. That is a long time. 20 years. There's no voice from heaven saying, hey, just hold on in there. Hang on. It's going to be okay. It's going to work out. There's nothing. There's no, it's not like a video game where you're like next level. Like he doesn't know. In fact, it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. There's no therapist saying that this is going to build your character. There's nothing. God's promises given given in two dreams is what he has. And I'm sure he doubted them. For 20 years. If, if that, I'm sure that resonates with some of us. I'm sure that some of us feel like we're in, a, in the middle of a story that hasn't quite yet resolved. We feel like we're in the middle and we're asking, what are you up to, God, at best? So God's sovereign in all these random circumstances, but also, and this is where it gets a little tricky, God is actually sovereign over willful sin in this story. Not only do we see him orchestrating the circumstances, he actually uses circumstances that involve sinful, evil action. Now, don't get me wrong. God does not cause sin. James 1, 13, 14 says this, let no one say when he is tempted. Do we have that one? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God doesn't cause sin. God cannot, does not cause evil. In fact, in in, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, it says that God restrains evil. Otherwise, our world would truly be hell. That is important in this moment to remember. That God restrains evil in this world. Evil hearts, broken systems, deadly disease. God restrains it. He is in control. But he does allow things. And that's a hard thing to understand. These brothers were going to kill Joseph. In the end, they sell him into slavery. And God allows it. Why does he allow it? That's a very complicated question. And one that the story will continue to answer in different ways. One thing we see right now is that it looks like one aspect of this is God allows sin because it exposes our hearts. The brothers' hearts are truly revealed in this weird moment where they have a chance to do what they've thought about doing for a long time. Our hearts are revealed. Sometimes God graciously exposes what we're truly capable of who we truly are. Don't miss this. It is through the evil acts of the brothers that this story moves forward. But that's good news. Because in some ways, when you look at it from the other side, that means that you can't out-sin God's purposes. Or you can't out-mess God's grace. He undoes it somehow. He undoes this evil moment. But this is not super clear to Joseph as he's sitting in that pit, as he's walking into Egypt, enslaved, exiled by his own family. It's not clear to Jacob, his dad. When the brothers snatch him, there's a lot that goes on with Reuben, the oldest. I wish we had more time to to talk about what's going on, why he wants to put him in a pit. It's actually mostly self-motivated stuff. They're selfish. 
There's a lot that goes on, but eventually they decide, let's sell him. They kill a goat. They, they get his beautiful coat and they dip it in the goat's blood to make it look like there was this terrible accident. And they send it to Jacob. And then Jacob thinks, oh my goodness, it's all over. This is what he says. Uh, they send him the, the coat and they say, this we have found. Please identify dad, whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Sheol is the word for pit. Jacob's saying, no, I'm going down the pit. I'm going after my, 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 I'm done. He wants to exile himself. He says, this is not the way things were supposed to be. And I, I know that there's been a lot of times this last week where I've really felt this is not the way things were supposed to be. Where we feel very removed from a safe place from home. We feel exiled in a way we don't like where we are. It is bad. It's hard. People called me and said they've lost their jobs last week. There's a lot of people that are going to lose their jobs. Some are sick and wondering, do they have coronavirus? We feel not at home. We feel exiled. We can identify in many ways with Jacob in this moment, many ways. But I want us to look at the last verse. And I'll be honest, family, this verse messed me up this week. The first word of the last verse is amazing. Meanwhile. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. It's saying, meanwhile, a story is being written. Meanwhile, the, the dad is mourning a loss. And meanwhile, God is sending him into Pharaoh's courts. There's a meanwhile happening, working itself out. Meanwhile, God's purposes are being laid to redeem this dysfunctional family. And the whole world is going to be rescued. We've been asking for a few months now this question. What, what, is, God's, what is God doing in this? What's going on in this moment? And I just want to remind us with the words of this passage, there is always a meanwhile of our story. There is always something that God is doing. And I want us family to, to really be asking the question, what is God's meanwhile in this moment for us? God's meanwhile is better than our best dreams. And it really can undo our, our worst nightmares. His meanwhile is always acts of kindness, bringing us closer to his heart. We've been, we've been in this season for a long time. I know that's, it's not hard for me to say that to us because we've already seen it in the last few months. I, I said this before, but it, we started by asking, what are you doing, God? What are you doing? But slowly we begin to see that the right question to ask the father is, what are you doing? What are you up to? And just to be clear, especially for those of you who don't know me, I'm not saying we should look for a silver lining in this mess. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, as resurrection people, we can stare a difficult reality dead in the face 
in ways that we couldn't if we weren't resurrection people. I'm not saying that this isn't serious. But I do want us to say, I do want us to be continuing to, to ask, God, what are you doing? Because there's always a meanwhile of his story. Andrew Peterson's line from one of his songs has been such a healing balm for months and it needs to continue to be something that challenges us as we say, God, you're always good. You're always good. And somehow this sorrow is shaping my heart like it should. You're always good. Always good. And if it's hard for you to fathom God working through the bad things, the evil and the suffering, then look at Jesus on the cross. That's the picture we need to look at. That's the picture that Joseph is going to point us to, is pointing us to. Jacob sent his son to Shechem to check on his brothers, not knowing if he was sending him into danger. God sent his son knowing what was coming. God sent his son so that you and me, brother and sister, can be rescued, knowing it would cost him everything. Jacob, Jacob sent Joseph to see if they were all right. God sent his son to make it right with us. In Joseph's story, we see that God's hand's going to protect him, and they don't kill him. But God's own hand does not protect his son. He dies to redeem us. And so you, you, you see that the cross shows us this, this moment this most obvious moment where God has the power to undo the worst of evil. Because let's be clear, when people are nailing nails into Jesus' hands, it's an act of evil. But think about this. The king of the universe is providing like sustenance to those muscles that are nailing the nails into his hands. He's allowing them to not go limp. He's allowing this evil thing to happen, knowing that it will be undone. Jacob, Jacob looks at the, the bloodied robe of, of his son and says, yes, that's the bloodied robe of my son, and he's without hope. Our father looks at the bloodied robe of Jesus, and he gives us a righteous robe and says, you are my son because of my obedient firstborn. And so... This question that we had in the middle, to what lengths will God go to redeem his family? What's the answer? He will go to all the lengths. To all the lengths. He cares about you. He's going to go to all the lengths. This is where we look at the cross and we see, like me with my toddlers, we see the father grabbing us and saying, don't you know? that I care about you and that every act is an act of kindness and in every circumstance I can undo it for my glory and for you to know me more. There's always a meanwhile of what God's doing. If we feel out of control right now, it's normal. It's a, that we should. <laughs> we are out of control. But there's a more, there, there's a moment that it, it it really looks like God's out of control. And that's when Jesus is on the cross and he undoes it and he's absolutely in control. And if he was in control when Jesus was on the cross and raised him from the dead to give us life, we know he's in control now. 
And that doesn't mean that we don't feel a little helpless. We do. But it changes the way that we interact with reality and we interact with people around us. It gives us that non-anxious presence that we've been talking about for a few weeks. And honestly, it lets, lets our shoulders kind of relax a little bit. With my kids, you know, you're trying to get them to the beach and they arch their back like, no, and you're like, don't you know? But eventually, if you hold them long enough, they finally do that thing, they're sobbing, they're crying, where they go, <sighs> the loving kindness of our dad lets us do that in the worst of moments, where we get to go, <sighs> and we get to bring about the peace that only comes from knowing the God of peace. So as we transition into um, your time in your living room, I, I want to invite you, um, you have the digital liturgy that's posted online, and there's a couple of ways that you can respond right now. Um, there's a couple of ways that, that uh, might allow you to do that alone or with others. There's a catechism about the sovereignty of God, and there's um, a song, um, the one, uh, uh, a song about, uh, from Andrew Peterson about him working all things together. But I want us right now to stop, and it's a cool moment, we're disconnected, but we're connected. And I want us all to listen for a second and then to pray. To pray um, that we would pay attention to God's meanwhile in this moment. Because God has something for us as a church. So if you would, if it's possible in your living room, let's take a moment to be quiet. And then I'll pray. Father, I've never been more aware of your meanwhile power than I have in the last few months. You are a good, kind dad. And the last few months have been the hardest. I pray that as a church, you would revive our hearts as individuals first, that our hearts would desire meanwhile reality with you and then it would change our families in our living rooms that we're confined to right now and then it would change our hearts and our and our church's heart and it would change our city you're a good god we love you i pray that you would continue to lead each of us in our homes right now if you